I just wanted to begin today by just pointing out a couple of articles from today's, uh, thanks, from today's Boston Globe. Um, there was an article, there's an article, it's on the financial pages about investors reconsidering gene therapy and startups funded as, as technology evolves. A lot of you have heard the words uh, gene therapy. Uh, some of you at the end of that bacterial genetics lecture said you weren't quite sure what complementation was, but complementation is basically, gene therapy is basically complementation put to work. The idea is if you've got a broken gene and you can put in a good copy, then you'll take the cell back to being normal, which is exactly what we were doing in those phage crosses where we had one, two phage, one with the mutant copy of the gene and one with the wild type uh, copy of the of the gene, and they're saying here that uh, there's, a, there's a renewed interest. Now, the basic strategy in these things is to take um, uh, usually a retrovirus, the same kind of idea that we heard about with the uh, HIV-1 virus that will uh, make a, a DNA copy and then the copy gets inserted somewhere in the chromosome. So the, the good thing is it puts in a new copy in the chromosome. The bad thing is that you've got a piece of DNA being stuck somewhere in the chromosome, and there are places where it can go in where it doesn't matter, and there are other places where it really does matter, and so it's been a very tricky business uh, with, with gene therapy, and part of the thrust here is they're thinking that maybe they need to pick targets where the person's going to die anyway, so that there's, if there's a risk of them getting cancer or something, it's outweighed by the possible thing. That's sort of the thrust. You can see the articles in today's paper. Um, it's very timely for what we're talking about now, and then on Friday I'm going to start talking about recombinant DNA strategies and stuff. But there's another article in today's paper. Uh, this is one of these things I've told you about where an article is published in the, in this case, online in the journal Nature. They have a, an embargo on a press thing until Thursday or, or, or so, and then the articles on about the the papers, the hot papers that have just come out show up in the newspaper, usually either on Friday or Monday. And this is yet another system that they describe as making a molecular repair kit that corrects mutations in a cell's uh, DNA. And so far, this has only been done in cells, but it's working well enough. And the article is saying this th approach could become a serious competitor to conventional gene therapy. And here you have uh, sort of a layman's account of this kind of complementation by gene therapy. We're talking about gene therapy, that field which attempts to force feed healthy genes into cells hobbled by defective ones has been plagued by failure and recently was found to cause leukemia in some patients. That's probably because of the insertion events associated with these viruses. This new system rewrites the small stretch of misspelled genetic code that's typically the reason a gene has gone bad. So it's a different kind of strategy. This is the report, first report I've heard of that. And here, um, I'm just, you know, some of the stuff we're talking about, as I say, it's sort of inescapable because you're going to see it in the paper. There they're telling you the sort of thing I was just saying, the viruses inject their payloads at random within the cell's tangled mass of DNA, sometimes disrupting normal genes. 
Even when genes land in good locations, the molecular machinery that regulates their activities also often thrown off, leaving the healthy genes operating at a level too low to be helpful or functioning in the wrong parts of the body. This begins to sound familiar. If you stick a piece of random DNA in somewhere, you can disrupt the regulation of a gene as well as just landing in the open, uh, in the open reading frame. So there's a problem with gene therapy. Now, they'd like to think make you think that this is going to be the promise to everything, but as always, it's more complicated. And so I just picked the last paragraph of this article. Other scientists said the approach looked promising, but predicted it would end up struggling with its problems of its own. James M. Wilson, a gene therapy researcher, University of Pennsylvania. Now, there's somebody who's in a position to criticize, but also has a vested interest in himself in the alternative therapy. Uh, noted that the first step in the new process causes for zinc fingers, that's a kind of protein uh, that's involved in this, to make a fresh break in DNA to accommodate the insertion of the corrective sequence. It's the same kind of break you get with radiation that can lead to cancer. And we're going to talk today about how you'll see where single-stranded breaks can, um, or, or double-stranded breaks and whatnot can be a, a real problem in terms of the integrity of the DNA and genome stability, which is Maintaining genome stability is so important in avoiding cancer. Um, you guys are a tough crowd. Uh, the comments ranged from this was the best lecture that I'd given to uh, ones that were absolutely the other end of the spectrum. You're a very hard, uh, hard group. Um, I, I truly am going to take... I don't have time really to sit back and re redo all my lectures, but I have a huge amount of input, and I'm going to to go back over this, uh, all this input I'm getting and, and take it very seriously in terms of how I go about things next year. I can see a number of changes I'm going to make. Whoever uh, sent me the, uh, the email that talked about the Dock Street Bohemian Pilsner brewed in Utica, New York, this classic golden Pilsner's pungent, light, perfumey taste and so on, you know, it was a moment of lightness, but if I got too many things like that, it's not going to help me any in... Uh, in trying to figure out uh, how to do. For the person who asked about how to avoid accidental pollination, when they're going to do that, they actually take the stamens off the flowers so you don't get accidental uh, self-fertilization to actually go out and make ones that are just male or just female flowers. You can, you can do that rather easily. Okay, so um, what we'd gotten to last time, what I told you last time um, was and I promise you that there's another Mendel lecture coming. For those of you who thought this was a little slow, you may find the next one's a little too fast. But anyway, <laughs> that'll be how it goes. Um, Mendel had carried out this, this fundamental series of experiments. And I did linger over it because I think it's so simple. You can actually see the scientific process in action. And it also isn't complicated by any techniques that we can't see. And it was a tremendously important uh, insight that that um, genetic information came in units. But as I told you, it wasn't accepted because for most of the world uh, at the time, it was a statistical argument. Now, there weren't any entities that there were two of inside a cell and all that sort of thing. So uh, it didn't take over, take over scientific thinking. It wasn't until about 1900s when several other geneticists did finally find systems that duplicated Mendel's results and therefore showed um, that it was a gen this, these were general inferences, something that Mendel himself, as I told you, by choosing weeds and bees as follow-up systems, hadn't been able to do. Um, they, uh, 
these other ge geneticists showed them in other systems, but the other thing that, that made the uh, difference uh, at the time was by this point cytologists who were looking at cells under microscopes had found entities whose behavior seemed to match those of these particles of information that Mendel had postulated to explain these patterns of inheritance that he was seeing. These particles, because they, they were called chromosomes, which literally means colored things, The reason they were colored was not because they were inherently colored, but because cytologists were staining the cells with a variety of things, and that was what uh, allowed them to, to, visualize, uh, to visualize these. And so by staring under microscopes right around this time, uh, around the turn of the century, 1900s or so, cytologists had come up with three key uh, observations. One was that chromosomes... came in matched pairs. So let's say in this cell that were too long and too short. So that's a chromosome. And it corresponds, we now know, to a double-stranded DNA molecule that's been that's been all uh, all condensed up, and there are two two copies of each of each chromosome in this thing. So too long, too short. One came from mom, one came from dad, and I'm for bookkeeping purposes. I'm going to color them so that from one parent is is unshaded and the other one uh, is shaded. Most of you know we have. In human cells, we have 23 pairs of chromosomes. This is a now fancier method of, of uh, visualizing chromosomes called painting chromosomes, where you take, homologa take uh, little stretches of DNA that are unique to particular sequences, attach dyes, and then use them to stain the cells. And so they will color only particular uh, chromosomes. And we have 22 pairs of identical chromosomes, and then the, the sex chromosomes uh, here, X and Y, this would be a, a male or two Ys if we were female. We'll return to those in the next lecture. Kim Naismith, who's been his life working on how these chromosomes segregate, gave a talk a year ago. He's in London, at a hospital in London, and then he brought in the next slide. There was an artist who spent uh, several months uh, visiting with them trying to find ways to represent in art some of what she saw going on. And I thought you might enjoy seeing this, this slide. This is the human complement of chromosomes represented in stripy socks that various staff members from the, uh, from the uh, hospital brought in for her to do this. So a little touch of scientist humor, which some of you may think is pretty nerdy. But anyway, there it was, <laughs> for what it's worth. Uh, he showed that in our, in our departmental colloquium. Okay, the second thing then that, um, that, that these, the cytologists noted by staring at this was during ordinary cell division, 
uh, which gives two identical daughters, the numbers of, numbers of chromosomes per cell is preserved. Ordinary cell division is given the special name of mitosis. So if we take this cell, the first thing that happens then is that the chromosomes are duplicated. We've talked a lot about DNA synthesis at the molecular level. This is looking at it. So they're, they're, they're now two DNA molecules, but each, each, each one of these new DNA molecules is given a special name. This is called a chromatid. So there was one DNA molecule here. It's now duplicated, but you'll notice these are still joined together. The point at which they're joined together is known as the, as the centrosome. And then after this, uh, after the DNA's been copied, these things are lined up at the center of the cell, and then they're pulled apart to give two daughter cells that are just like what you started with. This part, so this is 2n, if n is the number of, of kinds of chromosomes, and then there's two each. This is 2n. This point, the DNA content of the cell is 4n. This is 2n. This is 2n. We're back to what we started. This part was invisible to the, uh, to the cytologists, at least in the sense that the chromosomes at this point are extended and so you can't, they weren't able to visualize them by looking through the microscope. But as it came time for cell division, then the chromosomes condensed up very, tight, very, very tightly. This is probably to avoid tangles when you need to pull them apart into the two daughter cells. And then the part they could see then, this was known as mitosis, this process by which the uh, chromosomes are pulled apart. So mitosis is a mechanism for nuclear division that results in two daughters with uh, identical gen genetic information. Okay. And you contrast this to meiosis, which I'll show you in just a minute. It's the, this has been studied for years in a kind of 
observational way. I showed you at some point, this is an animal cell where the chromosomes line up and then they pull apart. And I think I showed you, and then this, you can see the cells divide once they've, they've done that. I'm going to show you this next uh, thing, which everything happens more slow motion. This is a picture of a, of a blood lily, so it's a plant. And again, you know, the choice of model system is often uh, if it has a feature that's good for a particular thing. So this is, uh, this happens uh, very easy to visualize in these lily cells. Now here the cells have duplicated their, their uh, chromosomes and the two chromo the daughter chromosomes are held together. They're glued together so you can't tell in this thing that, that they've been glued. Now, in order to separate, the first thing they have to do is to line up at the, at the equator of the cell, and then it pulls apart, and you can see that each daughter cell gets one of the, the duplicated, uh, duplicated chromosomes. Okay, so that's, that's mitosis. Generates uh, two copies of what you, what, you, uh, what you started with. The other observation that the cytologists made was that cell divisions that produce sex cells uh, work by a different uh, system. So third things. And I'm going to give you the the scientific word now for sex cells. So it's called, they're usually called gametes, uh, general terms. So that would be sperm and egg, or pollen would be a kind of uh, a kind of gamete. In this process, the number of chromosomes. And this special uh, type of cell division is known as meiosis. Uh, it's very important because if we didn't have meiosis, we wouldn't have any progeny. <laughs> we need to be able to cut the number of chromosomes we have per cell in half. So as Mendel inferred, then when each parent made a contribution, you'd be back up to the right number, the right number of cells. Now, so this process begins again by duplication of the DNA. So this would be 2N. Now we go to, as before, with one interesting difference here. So we're at, we're at 4N uh, in, this, uh, in this cell. But you noticed I've drawn these uh, duplicated uh, chromosomes with, the, with chromatids over overlapping. That, uh, excuse me, this point of, didn't do this too well. This point of connection where the two, um, chromosomes overlap is known as a chiasma. 
some point of actual physical interaction between the between the, the chromosomes, and what it what it allows the cell to do is to take have the two homologous chromosomes, the in this case the two long ones, find each other and actually physically interact. That's a critical um, uh, event for the uh, next step that's, that I'm that I'm going to show you. It's also a point at which, as you'll see in the next lecture, there's additional genetic diversity. Uh, introduced into the into the system. So uh, at this point, what's happened is the DNA has doubled. At this point, it looks sort of like mitosis, except for the fact that the duplicated chromatids have overlapped. There's at least one of these for every pair of duplicated uh, chromosomes. So what happens in the next phase, which is known as meiosis one? is that the pairs of duplicated chromosomes are separated. So we get two cells. We might get, say, the unshaded of this one and the shaded of the little guys. And the other one then, get the shaded of the long one, the unshaded of this one. This is 2n, and this is 2n. But if you'll take a look at uh, what's happening over here, we'll see we don't have the same thing going on. In that case, we were producing identical copies of the, uh, of each, um, of the starting cell. In this case, we've got something different now because we've separated both copies of, let's say, the chromosome from dad from both copies of the chromosome that originated with mom and the other way over here. These then undergo a second round that's known as meiosis II, which resembles now mitosis in the sense that the, the duplicated chromatids are now pulled apart into daughter cells so that this one will generate one long unshaded one one short, and there'll be two of those. And this cell will generate a shaded long and unshaded like that. So now there are four of these, and you'll notice that there's now an N. So we have the number of, of chromosomes during meiosis via process of, by two rounds of of division. The other thing you can think of is you can begin to see at least why sex, the evolution of sex was such a powerful force in driving evolution by introducing so much variation because each of us has a uh, you know, copy of every, each of our 22 chromosomes that are where we have homologous pairs, one from mom, one from dad, but every time we make a sex cell, be it uh, a sperm or an egg, uh, what happens is for chromosome one, you can either get the copy from mom or the copy from dad. And then the next one, copy from mom, copy from dad, so on. You can see the variation that's possible just from that part of the, of the process alone. And there's going to be more variation uh, that comes about from events that happen where this chiasma is, as I'll show you. So.
Meiosis then, as I said, is a mechanism for nuclear division that produces four daughter cells with half the genetic info of the, of the original. So, how did I write that? In this case, the daughters are not identical. Somebody have a question? Yeah. Oh, I'm just trying to trying to this part of the process is they they cytologists broke this down. Uh, when they were observing. So it was a part they couldn't see. When they started to be able to see it, they first saw this one division that did this, and then the second division. They called the first round of division meiosis one, and the second meiosis two. So it was just an, you know, an, a name given to the process. Yeah. The error. The error, which? Oh, sorry, excuse me. Okay. I see the problem. Okay, it goes this way. This period of time is called meiosis one. That part of the process is called meiosis one, meiosis two. Sorry, missed you. The daughter cells have two of the dark um, like chromosomes, or two of the um, like not both chromosomes together. Um, it, Oh yeah, I mean, what I wrote down was arbitrary. You could have had two from mom and two from dad. And in fact, I guess with, if we have 22 pairs, we could have a, eventually have a sperm or egg that had all of the copies from mom and all of the copies from dad. Um, you could calculate the statistical chance of that happening. But you discover, as we'll find next time, that even if you did that, that the chromosomes would no longer be identical to what you got from mom or from dad because there's a little bit of genetic recombination going on during that, during that process, okay? I'll also show you in a minute that you can get uh, errors in this process and that these are important. So, what happens then at fertilization from this, what the cytologists could see then happen was the number of chromosomes had been halved so you had n plus n giving you 2n where this might be for example be the egg and this might be the sperm since gametes have half half the number of half the genetic content when they fuse then you go back to the original number and this gave rise to what was known the chromosomal um, theory of inheritance. 
Even though cytologists didn't know what these colored things were, they seemed to have the properties that you would expect the carriers of the genetic information to have. They duplicated before a cell was going to divide, and then they seemed to be very precisely segregated so that each daughter cell got one copy, and it made sense then in terms of uh, the formation of sex cells you'd have, and then it would all come back up. So the cytologists proposed this chromosomal theory of inheritance, that chromosomes were the carriers, were the, carried the genetic information. And you can see now, then when Mendel's work was rediscovered, which is more or less what happened around 1900, how beautifully it mapped on top of this, because his idea that the genetic information came in particles, you think, well, those particles are sitting on those chromosomes. They get duplicated, they get separated, they get divided in half. Their number gets divided in half when you make, uh, when you make sex cells. Okay. So, um, I want to uh, at least point out, let me go on to this next thing here. Well, here was one other picture I'd shown you. This was a cancer cell dividing. Again, we see the same process at work. And that, just remind you when I was talking about that kind of uh, process, trying to remind you that one cell gives rise to two cells and one DNA molecule gives rise to two DNA molecules, that these are phenomena related, even though one tends to talk about in different parts of the courses. And if you've got more than one DNA molecule per cell, then each one's a chromosome, and then you have to take care of segregating those as well. But um, a point that I'd made is that if, you know, up till that, this part to the right, it could be a yeast or an E. coli, but if it's going to be someone, uh, something more complicated that's got different kinds of cells uh, like us, then there we had these, uh, ultimately, an adult human with 10 to the 14th cells. So this process has to happen over and over and over again, and it has to be really, uh, really very accurate. And there was remarkable uh, advances have been made in understanding this process over the, the last uh, few years. And they were done, uh, a lot of this was due to the work of, um, of Lee, Lee Hartwell who um, showed that, who offered, carried out experiments, I guess, that offered some key insights into the uh, basis of the whole cell cycle, of which this is just part. So they said, here, we can't really see all of, all of this stuff in the microscope. What cytologists, cytologists were able to observe was after the chromosome had duplicated, then they condensed up, they became visible, and they could see that part of the uh, system. So uh, a great body of knowledge has been learned over the past few years. Lee Hartwell, who was a postdoc at MIT with Boris Magasanik a number of years ago, was one of the uh, key people who led to this uh, round of insights. And what we now know, the cell cycle can be basically divided into um, Four parts. So a, a newly born cell, if you will, undergoes what's known a, a phase of the cell cycle that's known as the G1 phase. And you could think of this as, amongst other things, sort of preparation for duplicating the cell's uh, DNA. And then there's a phase 
known as S, the S phase, which is when DNA synthesis takes place. That now makes the, gives the cell uh, an information content of 4N. There's then another phase known as G2, which you could think of as sort of preparation for pulling the chromosomes apart and for the cell dividing, and that's known as mitosis. And the way that, uh, so this is quite uh, remarkable, it's quite fundamental, it's a very elegant and very complex system of, of controls. And what Lee learned is that there's a, an elaborate system of what we now know as, as checkpoints. in the cell cycle. And the idea is pretty much the same sort of thing that you might do if you're an engineer and you're setting up a quality control process that involved a series of stages. And what a checkpoint does is it basically demands successful completion of a prior phase before the system is permitted to move to the, the next stage. And you can sort of see the problem here, that if you were trying to, say you were copying your chromosome, your, your DNA, and you only got partway through and then you proceeded to the part where you pulled the, the chromosomes apart, there would be all kinds of chaos inside of the cells because you would be breaking chromosomes, you wouldn't be getting identical information. And he, there are three major uh, checkpoints. There's a, a checkpoint at the G1S boundary, there's an intra actually more than one, but there's an intra-S phase checkpoint, and then um, there's another one at the, uh, the G2M. Boundary as well. And the way that um, Lee found this out, I wanted to just take you back, because uh, remember when we were, I, I was talking, well, first when we talked about how would you genetically, how would you get a mutant affecting an essential cell? Uh, a gene that's, whose function is essential for the cell. And we said you'd have to be conditional in some kind of, some kind of way because other the organism would be dead and we couldn't use um, genetics to, to study it. So when I introduced you to those phage and we wanted to study critical functions needed for phage growth, we needed a conditional mutant. Remember what we did? look for temperature-sensitive mutants. So that's what Lee Hartwell started to do with yeast in 1970, approximately. He just looked for mutations that were temperature-sensitive lethals in yeast. Now, yeast can be diploid, uh, but they also can be haploid, which is just one copy of genetic information. So just like a bacterium, haploid yeast, if you get a mutation affecting the a gene, then you see its phenotype right away because there isn't the complication of a second chromosome. And uh, Lee got the Nobel Prize for this work just, I forget, three years ago or a short time ago anyway. And so this was the process he was studying. I showed you this, this movie. And in this case, the, this is budding yeast, and you can see why it's called budding yeast, is that rather than the cell growing and then segregating down the middle, the daughter cells grow as little buds coming off the side. You know, the DNA is still going to be duplicated as we've got and then segregated into the daughter. So that part of the process is, 
is there, but that's, there's yeast growing sped up a bit so you can see it. So what Lee found was when he looked at his TS mutants, he found that they tended to arrest at characteristic stages, and he was able then to figure out that there must be some sort of checkpoint system that if something went wrong during one of the phases, then the cells would all, pi would all pile up at a particular characteristic stage in the cell cycle, and this was controlled by these, uh, by these checkpoints. These checkpoints are of enormous uh, importance because uh, if something goes wrong with them, as happens often in cancer cells, then you get a huge increase in the instability of the genome, very similar to the way that um, losing, for example, mismatch repair causes instability of the genome and therefore things that can cause a cell to forget to divide when it's stopped dividing when it hits its neighbors, which part of the cell it belongs to, and so on. Um, can those kinds of uh, changes will come with much greater frequency. Another thing that was completely remarkable was because it was yeast, it was relatively easy to, to find the genes that, um, that were broken. Going back to complementation with leaving aside the technicalities, if we have a mutant that's a TS lethal and it's dead, if we put a good copy in, we'll know it because the cell won't, be, won't die at high temperature anymore. So it, you can sort of hope see from first principles. It was relatively straightforward to find the genes in yeast that are necessary for cell cycle control. And the remarkable thing is they've been conserved all the way up to humans, that the, the, the proteins that are involved in the cell cycle control are virtually identical in humans. So the system, again, is probably locked into in, into place because it works so well and once it was working then evolution didn't have a lot of space. I wouldn't say it's completely identical and, and human cells, for example, have a few more wrinkles that they throw in, but fundamentally you can see evolutionary, evolutionarily that this system evolved, uh, evolved once. One thing I just want to comment on, um, just, and here's just an example of the sort of thing that can happen if you get uh, a problem with, with pulling chromosomes apart when they're not ready or something happens that makes a break uh, in a chromosome, you'll get a, a double-strand break and cells don't like that and they try and fix it up. I think in this case you can see that this chromosome 9 has picked up a piece of a couple of other chromosomes. Here, this piece here came from chromosome 8 over here and this piece here came from chromosome 22. And so this cell now has things kind of messed up. This particular chromosome's got uh, parts of two other chromosomes, and so you can if you start to think about the consequences of that, you'll see when you segregate, start segregating chromosomes, there are issues. And also the junctions themselves can sometimes do things like creating fusion proteins that have aberrant properties. For example, a signaling molecule that's now locked permanently into the on position or something like that. Those sorts of things can happen by these as well. So um, here's in very abbreviated form the principle that happens, uh, what happens so that the chromosomes become visible in the microscope. There's about a couple of meters of, of DNA in every human cell. So you can see almost from first principles, it almost has to be packaged in some way to fit in that little tiny area. And they are 
down at the basic level, the DNA is looped around a little cluster of proteins called histones. And then as the uh, cells approach the, the mitotic stage, they package these at higher and higher and higher levels of packaging so that the chromosomes get more and more compact and therefore less like spaghetti and less, like to, less likely to get tangled when they're, when they're pulled apart. Now, this is a, this part, teaching this part of the course, it's in the book. It's a little like glycolysis, though. It's, there's so much detail, it's hard to notice at all. And what I've tried to do here is just sort of take a step back, focus you on the really big parts of the, the process. But you can see this is a sort of typical textbook thing showing you the various sub-stages of this process that uh, cytologists have they've given names to each, each part of this. For example, you can see the chromosomes lining up at the, at the equatorial phase just before they're going to be um, pulled apart. One little detail, uh, which I've glossed over at this point, is you can see that the chromosomes are, of course, surrounded by the nuclear membrane. And at least in many cells, what happens is in order, um, just before the chromosomes are going to be fold, pulled apart, this nuclear membrane in a, in a matter of 20 or 30 seconds goes from being a membrane into sort of breaking into a whole little series of membrane sacs. And then after the chromosomes have pulled apart, now you reassemble the nuclear membrane around each set of chromosomes. And I think there's still an awful lot to be learned about how that particular trick is, is done. And that's a textbook diagram. Those are, these are the kinds of things that the cytologists were looking at as they were describing it. And one thing you can certainly see, I think, is that there are a lot of, if you want to think of them as cables, this whole process is uh, done by molecular machinery. And in fact, one of the key things for ensuring that the chromosomes are all lined up is they each are attached to each pole of the cell. So an individual uh, chromosome feels tension on both sides. And there's pretty good evidence at this point that um, says that the, what has to happen before, cell, before the mitosis is allowed to, to uh, proceed is that each pair of, each duplicated chromosome must feel the tension on, on both sides. And if, it, if one of them is only attached on one side, it's, it's not allowed to go, to, to go ahead. Here are a couple more pictures. The, the DNAs, the chromosomes are in blue and all this cabling is in green. You can see molecular machines basically at at work. Now I wanted to show you this, this picture because this is, this is important. There's, there's two parts to this. The first one is just, I wonder if, we, could we, Julie, could you hit the... So this is a normal mitosis. These are in cells, lung cells from a newt, which are very flat, so it's easier to, to visualize them. I believe this is by Nomarski, kind of optics called Nomarski optics. What they're doing, right, the, the duplicated chromosomes are getting lined up at the equatorial position in the, uh, in the cell, and you get a, a spindle attached to one side and then a spindle attached to the other, and once that's happened, then you can see the chromosomes. Watch this one over here, for example. Just got attached, and it's being pulled into the, into the middle, and once the cell feels that all the tension, there's tension on all of them, then it enables the, the next stage in the process, and you'll see each of the, the daughter chromatids segregate before. And I just want to impress upon you, uh, you know, it was complicated enough 
just replicating the DNA at the fidelity we talked about, an awful lot of other stuff has to go on. And you, it would be a reasonable question, is there ever a mistake? And there is. This one actually shows another cell where there's going to be a mistake. And you can't see it yet, but you can see the chromosomes are all condensed up. And they're beginning to uh, get these spindles attached. And as they get attached to the side, then they get localized in the central part of the, right down the equatorial plane of the, of the cell. But I think we'll start to see the problem emerging in a moment, and I think it's going to be this guy here. I think a little arrow will probably appear before too long. But you'll, what's happened is this one didn't get properly connected on both sides, but the cell's going to go ahead anyway. Watch, that the one up here is going to get pulled in. There it goes. It's getting pulled in, and then once it's, once it's in there, then the cell is going to go ahead and divide anyway. So you can see what the problem is. This one's got two over here, and it, this one over here is missing it. This process is known as non-disjunction. This is the sort of thing that happens in cancer cells that have broken, uh, where the checkpoint gene has been uh, broken. And then if you have that, then the cells go on. This same problem happens in meiosis. And it's up here. It's the same principle that if if you end up with uh, don't if you don't segregate the cells uh, the chromosomes correctly, then you can end up with a, a sex cell that has two copies of one of them, and the other one has none. And if you have two copies, two n plus one n, then you end up with a trisomy. And if you have 0 plus n, you end up with what's known as a monosomy. So these would be from defects in, in my, meiosis. I'll just close by saying the one that you probably have heard of is Down's uh, syndrome, which is trisomy 21. That comes about from this sort of process. It's a very debilitating uh, genetic deficiency, most of you are probably familiar with it. Uh, this process happens, things go wrong in meiosis. About uh, one in every fifth the detectable human pregnancies doesn't go to completion for the most part because of an underlying problem like this. The, the body is set up to need pair, the pairs of each chromosome. You have one too many or one too few, it's usually lethal. So if one in every five uh, human pregnancies has that happen, you end up with a miscarriage, which I, my wife and I have been through it. It's a devastating experience. I think you can just look around and figure the odds. A significant number of the people are in this room are going to have to cope with this. And I'm just bringing this up for your attention right now. Is it something that in our society we tend not to talk about very much, and unless maybe you're a Hollywood movie star and it makes it into the tabloids or something. But it's a very common human experience, very difficult to cope with. But there is, for most of those, uh, most of those uh, pregnancies that terminate very early, usually the underlying cause is a problem in, that traces back to the kind of stuff we're seeing here, where something went wrong during the segregation process of making the 
the sex, the sex chromosomes. And as I say, if it happens in just our ordinary cells, that's one of the places, one of the things that leads to progression to cancer. Okay, so we'll see you on uh, Wednesday.